Within End has been to discuss science and neo-Darwinian dogma with Geoffrey Bamford at the Oxford Centre for Buddhist Studies. Geoffrey is a bit of a polymath. He went to Oxford University in 1966 to study philosophy, psychology and physiology, but in his second year he switched to Sanskrit and Pali. He gained a first-class degree in 1970 and went on to do postgraduate work on early Buddhism and the cultural context from which it arose. He has been a businessman and ran an independent consultancy specialising in cross-cultural issues. He's been a mainstay at the Centre for Buddhist Studies since 2003. We started by considering how and why scientific ideas, such as neo-Darwinism, can readily become a dogma, an entrenched and unquestioned set of beliefs. Your proposition that you started with is that the Western philosophical tradition has led us to this impasse which uh, is manifest in the um, absurdity and widespread acceptance of you know, the the new synthesis, neo-Darwinism, whatever you're going to call it. And um, I'm not 100% sure about that because, I mean, there's a lot of Western philosophical traditions and so on, but you can say that the global culture, uh, which is uh, strongly uh, marked by the... Oh, history of the breakthrough that came in the West and therefore has this, this um, uh, background of Western philosophy fingerprints all over it, that um, it has a strong ontological bias, you could say. Mm. That um, What do you mean by an ontological bias? Well, I'm, I mean, I, I would, it's not a good word. Not Just, no, no, no. So it's a, it's a good, it is a very good word because it usually means that it's somehow either developmental or... Um, yeah, well, ontology, yeah, yeah, ontology um, is, is what is, you know, in is, computer yes, science, yes, yes. ontology is the entities that you're going to define yes. uh, in, in order to then have your programme do anything at all. Right? We're, you, we're used to that because we, we kind of create a world in which we live. Yeah. I mean, this microphone is created. I know it's created. Yeah. Uh, it's manufactured. It serves a particular purpose. I know its purpose and yeah, so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. as- ascribe things to it. And so I I see the world about us in terms of these kinds of contrived objects. Entities that exist, right? Entities that exist. So so we we assume a world which has in it discrete entities, and these entities have an existence. They are, uh, first of all, the way they are and no other way. They're fixed in that sense. And secondly, they're fixed because they don't change. Yes, Right. So well, they, 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 they change in the sense that, you know, they, 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 they may change start if you have a, it, it, yes, I mean, in, over a long period of time, it'll malfunction they will change, but yeah, yeah. In, in terms of their immediate utility, they don't change. Yes. Um, and, and if it changes, you say it's a different entity. <laughs> it's now a defective <laughs> it's rather now a than defective an microphone rather <laughs> yes. than a workable one. Yes. That's right. So you have these ideas. Do you this. think that we have an idea about the the world in the same way? Do you think, I mean, not you personally, no, no, we do, but we do, yeah. scientists view the world in a particular materialistic way, don't well, they? Well, not just scientists. Everybody does these days. Right. It, I mean, we're, we're all heavily conditioned to accept a certain 
implicit metaphysic, uh, mm. which you could describe as naive realism, you know, that there is a autonomous, really existent world out there that is made up of discrete things, entities, categories, which have these fixed characteristics and are invariant over reasonable periods and of therefore, time. And therefore, by an appropriate method, yeah. it is or would be or could be accessible to us. Yes, and therefore we can then state truths about these things that are. Scientists would often say something like, well, I'm only interested in the truth. That's right. As if there are a group of other people who might not be interested in the truth. Yes, and the people that they have in mind are artists. (laughs) Artists or philosophers. Philosophers, Philosophers, unfortunately, will ask the question, what is truth? Yeah. I mean, a scientist will say pretty well what you've said, though, wouldn't they? They'd say, look, truth would be what is perceived to be out there what is out there and what, what, really I, what, I, there. what I do as a scientist is to find better ways of seeing it, better ways mm. of measuring it, better defining ways of it. touching it and defining it and yeah, so on yeah, yeah. Uh, and that if we did that we'd have a better understanding of the world and the universe yes and, and uh, by understanding what is the entities, their characteristics etc we are then able to make judgments about what we want to do because we can't make judgments about what's the right thing to do, what we should do, what people can or uh, feel like doing or whatever rationally unless we start from a judgment about what actually is there. So this is a kind of a view that we would regard as sort of scientistic in the sense well, that I'm not, there is I'm, a, I'm not there is a, a truth. For the moment, this is just the implicit metaphysic of anybody and everybody on the street. When it gets erected into a an absolutist ideology by people who have got a certain social status and um, uh, an ability to influence opinion because they're, quote, scientist, unquote, then it starts to become... Um, uh, you, you could start to critique it as being scientific. You give me the impression when you're saying that that you have a certain degree of scepticism about this approach to understanding... Which, which approach? This, what you call, scientific. Yes. Well, but, but, I mean, yes, I, I do feel that this naive realism which underpins both the... Uh, everyday common sense of the man and woman in the street and the um, basis for action of people whose profession states scientist on their um, passports normally, you know. (laughs) (laughs) This naive realism is... It's it's an assumption set that works perfectly well and we're not going to say it shouldn't or uh, we're not going to lampoon the people that go for it. But uh, as soon as you start saying that this is an absolute truth Mm. and that other ways of dividing up the cake are erroneous mm. no once you or irrelevant or irrelevant or whatever it might be once mm. you start to um, erect the one right answer and bow down before it mm. then you start to get into what you can critique in one way or another and you could call it scientism the idea that 
There is a thing called science, which has a um, definable set of characteristics, for instance, a scientific method, uh, hypotheses, falsification, and so on. And it has a history whereby certain culture heroes, Newton and whoever, made great advances. And it has a... um, Uh, social value in terms of the uh, overall idea about progress, that we are moving forward and things are better and uh, continually getting better, sunlit uplands and so on. Getting better because the argument would be that we have a better understanding of reality. And we obviously have a better understanding of reality because the central heating works, uh, because, you know, we can fly to the moon, because technology works. Therefore, science, which is, in a sense, according to this view, expressed in technology, must be true. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And if you are throwing some sort of doubt upon my aggressive, naive realism, I being a proponent of the scientific establishment, then you're a Luddite, an obscurantist, or whatever it might be. But if you're saying it works, mm. um, is that not really the best that you could do then if it works? Because after all, what would be the point of it if it didn't work? Well, I mean, it's very important that things work. No, no problem. It just isn't the case that what works, works, because my explanation of why it works that helped me discover that it works is an absolute truth. And you might be missing, by that particular way of looking, by that particular technical way of looking at looking at the world in a mechanistic way, of manipulating it in a certain kind of way, it gets us a certain aspect of truth. Well, I'm not really particularly interested in truth. I'm just saying that it Mm. works, and that'll do fine, and it's good that it works. But if we then generalise and say it works because my description of the way it works and the universe in which I conceive it as working according to that description has an absolute truth that all must accept, then I'm a totalitarian. Yes. And indeed, there have been many systems, as yeah. it were, developed uh, through science over a period of uh, man's history uh, that have worked, yeah. but subsequently have been uh, supplanted by a different system, a different yeah. understanding, a, a new framework of viewing the very, very same bits of the machine. Absolutely, absolutely. So the question then comes is, how do you, how do you identify when... Uh, a, a system, as it were, no longer works sufficiently well, that there is something else that might work better. Well, because you, you obviously you come with new findings that it's difficult to squeeze into the framework of your existing interpretative uh, uh, sort of heritage, as it were, mm. what you've got from the previous generation of scientists or researchers or whoever it might be, and you start to tweak it and you can't tweak it, so you may have to say, well, it's, can we stop and start again somehow or other? And that happens all the time. Uh, this is your. Um, you get, as it were, paradigm shifts, don't you? You get your you paradigm, paradigm shifts. shifts. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and this, one paradigm shift, of course, was was Darwin's view of evolution. Yes. Not just Darwin's, but the but Darwinian view of evolution is a paradigm means. shift. The neo-Darwin view is an equal paradigm shift. It is. Yeah. It's a paradigm shift away from Darwin, isn't it? It is actually, absolutely because yes, it yeah. starts to be very gene-centric, and it, it becomes much more. 
determinate than Darwin, who was uh, excluding certain possibilities and highlighting certain others, but being much less um, prescriptive than they became under the neo-Darwinian aegis when they started to think particularly that they could... Um, tie it all down to real measurable quantities at the nano level, more or less. Yes, yes, yes. And seeing causality as being a sort of a one-way process from the molecule to the organism, and that that sequence of causality gave privilege, in a sense, to that uh, the, the molecular level. Yes, so the so gene-centered it... view is that the gene, in a sense, causes rather than the gene is simply used. It causes, and the word cause is a giveaway, because that suggests that you're trying to extend into the field of biology an understanding of causation that you've derived from other areas of the scientific endeavour, particularly physics. Yeah. And and because you've got measurable quantities right down at the uh, bottom level, the irreducible atomic sort of level that um, you can trace everything back to if you like, you therefore think you're more or less arriving at an equivalent to the Newtonian mechanistic universe. Mm. And you go, ah, that's great, because now I don't have to be troubled by the idea that people might have agency. Yes, why are you talking to me? Because of my genes and because on the savannah, this thing happened several million years ago. So we have no purpose in sitting in front of each other with this machine called a microphone. Yes, we have a purpose. Our purpose is to demonstrate the truth of the fact that it's because of our genes and what happened on the savannah these and millions of years so ago. so we have no say in the matter. You, yes, you, we have a just... say. We can be rational and discover that it is all about the genes and what happened on the savannah millions of years ago. Or we can be airy-fairy. Um... So the airy-fairy view is that we are sitting in front talking here uh, with the purpose of getting a better understanding of the way biological systems work. Yes, and getting a better understanding of the way in which the attempt to describe biological systems affects our choices of how we live. Yeah. The, the, the guy who was my uh, supervisor in physiology had got his doctorate by taking a large number of pigeons, I think about 50-odd, and chopping a slightly different part from the brain oh, of each yes. than measuring where they went splat against a wall under yes. controlled circumstances. Yes, yes. So, uh, no. <laughs> you kind of end up with a sort of an, a view that this computer works because of that plug. Yes. Uh, Because I can take the plug out and it stops working. Exactly. Actually, it doesn't because there's a battery, but you know what a point I'm getting at. Uh, It it, 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 it gives an erroneous view of causation, doesn't it? Because it it, it says that if without this it doesn't work, this must be causing that, rather than this may be important in the function of it. Yes, I'd agree with you. I could reframe it another way and I could say that what you're concluding is that this causes that 
all other things being equal. Yes. But all other things are never but equal. But they do do that with they do that with genes as well. They do that with I mean, genes. Knock as well. out genes, and then they exactly. say, look, if you can knock out this gene, and the the, the, the behavior is changed, that this must be causing the behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Again, it goes back to that. It could just simply be that that gene is a bit of the vital ingredient to it working. And th- th- there are millions but of other things going together. That, that, yes, it's not necessarily causative. And in fact, it, you know, so many genes can be knocked out. Uh, yeah. As you know, Dennis Noble refers to in his book yeah. "Dance to the Tune of Life," yeah. uh, without apparent effect yeah. on yeah. the very thing that it's supposed to be involved I in. Mean, the, the whole uh, discourse, should we say, or at least the whole way of framing the field that scientists are addressing, which involves looking for causes and determining causes, yes, yes, yes. is. Rather uh, than happenings, perhaps. Well, I would say the alternative would be to talk about conditions. Conditions. Context yes. out Context of which... Context out of which something occurs. Yes, yes, yes exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And, and you can then say that within this contextual field, yes. certain features, that's to say certain streams of values of variables, are in some way primary or seem to have a prominent position. And you can start, if you like, to describe them as causes but th- that's not really helpful no and it's going to say so we do we do need a better understanding of what causality really is that things are not necessarily caused we, we tend to have a sort of a sequential view of cause yeah. uh, uh, that a occurs and we have a push idea a of push cause idea. rather than a pull idea of cause or, 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 or just simply the the, the, the situational cause uh, that, that a is juxtaposed with b yeah. uh, is in itself causal Post hoc they don't need hoc, yeah. to do anything to each other, yeah, just yeah. to be, yeah. uh, that creates a situation, if you like, yes. uh, that we might interpret as causative because something is now happening that didn't happen without that juxtaposition of A and B. And, I mean, I'm very taken by uh, the, you know, Dennis always says it's not bottom up, yes. it's possibly top down but it's definitely middle out okay? and around and round and round and <laughs> things, right? causation actually is just simply about yes but if you take the middle out idea so then yes, at a level yes. below whatever middle you're choosing cause can be a pull factor as well as a push factor yes. mm-hmm. in other words when the wider system context is appropriate, then the factors at the more narrow system context end, which otherwise might be described as causes, can be effective, but not until the Yes. Wider we got right. to that view, didn't we? The, the sort of sequential view of causality by viewing the world about us as machinery, bits of yes. machinery, and the causation was mechanistic. Yes, and, and we, we, we uh, particularly uh, felt we were very uh, successful and felt pleased with ourselves because we got uh, from Galileo onwards a certain understanding of mechanics which... Uh, the powers that be in the world were very happy with because it helped them make their military technology better. <laughs> so we got locked into that. Yes, 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 yes. There's a sort of a, 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 a social econ- socio-economic imperative that... There's always a socio-economic context. As, yes, yes, about what we do. About what we do, yeah. It leads us on, in a sense, to the idea of the sort of structure and the organisation of scientific endeavour, doesn't it? Or hmm. academic endeavour, for that yeah. matter. That we tend to have... Uh, an idealistic view, in a sense, of 
of academics sort of working somehow in complete isolation from the culture around them. Mm. They have a that they can find some sort of neutral position to observe the world. They mm. go on some sort of hill somewhere called Neutral Hill that enables them to access reality without somehow or other being encumbered by cultural uh, viewpoints. But, so I, I mean, I don't think that is a a uh, set of values that one can apply to a scientist uh, that is without any worth. I think there is a, a, a sense in which those values can usefully be applied because when I am actually looking at a bunch of data and I am having trouble, then I do monitor the ideas that come to mind as to how this data could be related in terms of, oh no, I'm only thinking that because mm. I want to see it that way because I know how to apply this to it. Yes. I've got a, a mathematical function I could use or yes. um, it, it reinforces my uh, sense of how things ought to be because it looks pretty or it's it's got some sort of a um, a resonance with my sense of how things relate in general. You know, I do try to take my personal preferences out of it and look at what's there as it is. And you don't so we, we, that. we can reflect on it in that kind of way. We can't can, we? We can try to act on that reflection. But we, we can't ever tell ourselves that we have actually been value free. Yes, yes. yes. It, it, to be value free is to be more value-free, less value-bound at this particular point. But what we're not suggesting here is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. What we're saying is that there is a value in looking at the world in various ways. Yeah. Uh, but we must understand, as it were, the fault lines that exist in any of those ways of looking at the world. And, and that there is no absolute statement of this is so for all time ever. Yes. So, that, for instance, yes. science is the truth about the universe that is discovered by you know hard workers who apply no uh, value judgments but are neutral in their assessment no it's just at a particular time you try and be more neutral rather than less what i'd like to do now is to move on because i think that we have in a sense described how science modern science sort of goes about its work it does go about it in a kind of reflective way, but uh, it has a certain methodology. It has a certain degree, I mean, some might even regard it as sort of arrogance in relation to the truth. Um, but uh, if you push and push and question them, they will always resort to telling you that what they're really interested in is truth. Uh, and that any talk about any otherness in yeah. relation to what might be happening, uh, is exactly that, that, it, that it's, um, it's not essential. It's, it's froth on the beer. Froth on, yes, that's right. Yeah. So but is, there something, to, is there something fundamentally wrong with that view? I think we have to have compassion with that view, right? Mm. So we have to understand that um, you motivate yourself by framing your activity that way. And it's a useful motivational device. Um, science is very boring a lot of the time. 
there's a lot of butterfly collecting, a lot of stamp collecting. A lot of stamp collecting. Uh, and one's doing an awful lot of work that's sort of filling in the bits, the cracks and crevices uh, uh, of a wider, a wider idea. Specks of dust in a beam of light, you know. And, and uh, operating within very tight constraints, which are, um, you might say, research constraints, but they are very like the sort of bureaucratic constraints that somebody in an administrative function would operate under. So it's, it's um, grind, and it's um, slightly soul-destroying a lot of the time. So you've got to motivate yourself mm. to do it right, and you motivate yourself with this noble ideal of the truth. And in a sense, it, 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 it's not... Let's not rubbish it, um, because... Since the results that you get by motivating yourself in this way do allow you to make machines that work and possibly yes, yes, uh, yeah. ease I mean, the life this of This light works. Exactly. Uh, so what's wrong with that? Exactly. I mean, this but, is an but, achievement of science, isn't but it? If you then say that because my work is part of this broad endeavour that makes the technological society sustain the population that we've got, that... That, therefore, means that these things are absolutely true in some sense that can never be questioned but by anybody. Then you're going too far. No, that's right, exactly. Does it, does it help to understand us? Well, it, it, let's just say that it's a good way to motivate people to do this difficult work, which is valuable, but when people then say nobody else can have any other idea, you're going too far. So, and, and moreover, when you also say that nobody else can understand the data that I'm dealing with in any other way than I just happen to have understood it, you're also going too far because, as you say, sometimes sooner or later somebody's going to understand it quite differently. Yes, yes. There are paradigm so, shifts. Yeah. Yes, there are paradigm shifts. But um, th this is always also uh, assuming that we kind of wait for the paradigm shift. Mm. Um, but um, very often the paradigm shift requires something else to nudge it on its way. But since we know is one is very, coming, we can be provisional. We can be provisional. And we can also uh, apply uh, other conceptual frameworks to un that understanding which causes the, the paradigm shift. So, because the paradigm shift may not change on its on its own, because all the scientists are locked in, as it were, into the particular model, because the model works. It switches the switch and the light comes on. And Therefore, because it, within their hierarchies and their power structures and their yes. political... So, 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 so what... what what is this other kind of conceptual framework or what are these other kind of conceptual frameworks that can, can, can be, uh, as it were, uh, brought into play uh, that lead to this kind of understanding? I mean, what is it that we're talking well, I think about? You're, you're, if, we're, you're, you're, if we're saying, because yeah. it seems to me that we're saying that the pure scientistic view... Yeah. Uh, that all I need is the method of science yeah, to understand yeah. the world about us, that it's all bits of machinery, and if I can play around with the bits of machinery, I can find out how they work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems to me that what we're saying is that, hang on a second, that doesn't quite get there. That doesn't, it's insufficient to describe what it is that is happening that defines us. That 
tells us about us, about you and me, your identity, our identity as social beings, for example, our interactions with each other that also are important in switching on that light because it determines the reason why we switch the light on in the first place. Um, We have to have compassion again for the person who replies to that point and says that... um, I'm not, when I'm trying to uh, make sense of a body of empirical data that I have discovered, I'm not involved in relating with another person. At the same time, we have to notice a couple of things. One is that the scientific thinker who erects the chosen pattern for interpretation that they've got, the framing model that they're working with as an absolute truth, tends not to be very good at relating to anybody else because it imposes a sort of quasi-autism on the mind because it is very constraining. It's that bureaucratic constraint again. That's one thing to notice. And the second thing to notice... We're in a sense told that we must think in this particular kind of way. We We must act in that particular kind of way. We can't jump out of it even in other contexts. No, and we must operate in a particular kind of framework. Uh, and th- that's true in the organisation of science, isn't it, too? Because it tends to be very, very top-down directed now. What yeah. happens is that there's a big initiative that's yeah. erected by some quasi-organisation of some mammoth kind that's got an enormous number of billions of bucks to distribute. And they invite applications for funding within this framework. So all the scientists, I mean, nobody's going to write an application that's outside that framework. They're all going to operate within that framework. So the thing is self-fulfilling in a sense, that you're going to have lots and lots of people beavering away at that same framework. Yes, and I, we are, I think you've come to an interesting point there, which is, um, let, let's go back a little bit and, and join forward on that. Uh, many of the uh, most interesting new developments in science have arisen when people, as uh, the conventional saying goes, have been able to think outside the box. Mm. But... Um, this becomes harder and harder the more intensely scientific endeavour is managed mm-hmm. and the more the, the people who fund it control it in some uh, very mechanistic, predictive way. Uh, it can be quite aggressive, you know, as well, that box that they've erected, yeah. in the sense that uh, many, many scientists would find it extremely difficult to get not just funding, but a, a say, a hearing uh, for their work, because you've not just not Barbara sim- McClintock. Barbara McClintock is a classic example. Exactly right. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, Barbara McClintock. Well, I, I don't know very much. She was but the I one do... that found jumping genes. Wasn't that's she? right. That, that's uh, as, far as I know. Yeah, and won a Nobel Prize very late in life. Although she was stopped in the 1950s when she was working on jumping genes and found jumping genes, she was told that she shouldn't continue to work on them. Absolutely, and I don't think that's the only case. I mean, it was a very glaring yes, case, yes, yes. and so it's they widely come cycled. to light. If somebody wins a Nobel Prize, it comes to light. Yeah, yeah. Because you say, why did they get it so much later? What right. happened to right. their story? Right, right. Uh, there are many, many people out there who will not have a chance to win a Nobel Prize because they're just simply constrained. Uh, yes. In, in so, so the, the, this um, unwarranted extension of a valid set of assumptions to motivate you into an absolute truth for all people at all yes, time yes, yes. actually restricts the creativity, yeah, the creativity of science. 
I suppose what they would say to that argument is, look, you can't just simply have a free-for-all. You know, you've got to have responsibility for how the funding is distributed, for example. Yes. You've got to have at least some kind of purpose to the funding. You've got to have some rigour in uh, assessing publications, otherwise the whole thing will be a mess. Everybody would just simply publish whatever they liked, a bit like uh, Facebook or Twitter. Yes. Um, But you've got to have some sort of rigour in it. Yes, it's true, and um, it seems to many people to therefore imply that you have to uh, impose this fairly rigid conformist um, acceptance of the absolute truth of certain models that you happen to be using, certain metaphors, in fact, that you happen to be applying. But surely we can be a little bit um, less cut and dried about Mm. this. We don't have to be so black and white. And the fact that we are so black and white, so cut and dried, suggests that um, there's something niggling us Mm. underneath. And I think that comes to the um, point that you were making, I think, earlier about uh, the, the neo-Darwinian uh, new synthesis mm. that it um, it extends that mechanistic model of cause, as we were saying, mm. to people. So it removes mm. agency from agency people. Comes, yes. So that we've we've got to the point that the scientific endeavour is constrained by the very ideas that it purports to prove, well, namely that people aren't free no, agents in any sense. Exactly. I mean, what we're doing is applying science in the same way to individuals, the same way as we apply science to switching that uh, light on, that somehow or other we're defining a human being, let's say, uh, genetically. Yeah. Uh, who they are is defined by their genes rather than this is a gene centric view yeah. we see it in everyday life now people can you know go on their family history and and uh, and get a dna profile yeah, yeah. Uh, as if this is somehow rather defining them. And this is going to as tell if who this they is are. somehow rather yeah. completing the story. And so I am who I have to be. I'm because not responsible for who I'm going to make myself. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. I am my genes. I am my genes. Or, or at least background. I am the purpose. The, 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 my genes are my purpose. Yeah. I, 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 you know, and we, we do that. We have this kind of mechanistic. I was going to say dualism because I usually say dualism, but a mechanistic trialism in a sense because what we've got is the individual, yeah. the person. I say individual because I won't say person at the moment. We've got the individual uh, and we've got the genes yeah. that are somehow or other within the individual controlling them. Yeah, yeah. But then we've got this other conceptual framework of the gene pool. Yeah. As if it was something outside the system rather yeah, than yeah. in the system. We talk about the gene pool. All our behaviour is in order to maintain genes in the gene pool. As if there really is a, a pool there outside the system. So yeah, we've got yeah. a sort of a trialistic view. Uh, genes causing man, man's purpose, the gene pool. Uh, and this is, this is a complex mythical structure. Yes. It may, yes indeed, support the very practical endeavours of practical people from moment to moment. But other things could support that. Other ways of thinking could support that. It's just that people are locked into that one and therefore they absolutise it. And it 
you know, they, they say this is the absolute truth for all time, and it becomes absurd after a while. I'd like to go back. Yes. I'd like to pick up on that, what I think is a, um, a really interesting point, which is about motivational devices. Mm. So how, if you look at the history of it, did we get into this mechanistic, reductionist, yeah. uh, positivist uh, way of describing everything and then this assumption that the description must absolutely match what exists in this way in some eternal space as so described. Yes. I think that has to do with the, um, the, the sort of tension, uh, uh, the dialectic, if you like, that underpins much of this uh, controversy about the neo-Darwinian synthesis. People won't look at any alternative way of framing the data because they say you're going to introduce purpose, it's going to be creation, yes, it's going to be yes, God, yes, you're going yes. to get into superstitious patterns yes, of thinking. Yes. And that is quite ludicrous at times, but we have to take it seriously because it perhaps comes from a background. And the background is that in the 1660s, when they were setting up the Royal Society, uh, and the equivalents in France and in Holland and everywhere, and when these uh, corresponding societies of uh, experimental and rational uh, natural philosophers were starting to build up a um, a body of agreed approaches yes, that yes, worked, yes. they were, or at least they felt themselves to be swimming against the tide in some mm. sense. Yes, yes. Because they had to stop themselves thinking in ways in which they had naturally thought when they were little, uh, ways that had come from their mother's knee, from the church that they went to, from the stories that the um, people in the village told. We forget, don't we, that the Renaissance was truly revolutionary. And it required, exactly what we're saying is required now in a sense, that it required stepping out of the box. It required a challenge to our perceived notions about mankind and the universe and so on. And, and it, it required us to trick ourselves. Yes. It required us to um, pretend that nothing that had to do with the way we felt inside ourselves from moment to moment mm. had any relevance mm. to what really is, what really exists mm. outside, mm. what will help mm. me frame a hypothesis to put this mass of empirical data into a rational order. Yes. So it was a motivational device. The world had to be deterministic. Otherwise Only if you wouldn't I, well, be I, able no, to... The world had to be pretended to be deterministic. Predictable. Well, I, no, I, I had to kid myself. 
Yes, that it was yourself to, yes, I'd yes, kid yes, myself yes. that it was deterministic yes. in order to motivate myself yes. to isolate those regularities which did have a quasi-deterministic aspect. Mm. And those regularities were very useful. Mm. So I had to say there's only that, otherwise I couldn't motivate myself to the grinding work of actually pulling them out. And this became a sort of masochistic psychological reflex that we've it's hypertrophied, unfortunately. We've gone too far with it. Yes, yes. Um, the, the, uh, I, I, you, it, it's almost like a behavioural syndrome, isn't it, uh, in, in science? We've called it scientism rather than science because, yeah. in a sense, a true scientist would be open to much of what we're talking about and understand the... Well, your brother uh, is a good example. Uh, and under, yes. And how about Einstein? Einstein, know? a classic example, yeah, fantastic yeah, yeah. example. Uh, uh, and uh, so we're not talking about... We, must make this clear in a sense we're not talking about the whole of science and the whole of science uh, 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 all scientists what we're talking about is a mindset yeah but anyhow i'm i'm very keen not to demonize mm. this mindset and above all not to say there is a thing called scientism yes no people yes. at particular points in time yes erroneously apply a scientific approach yes 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 R- ruling out any other kind of input resisting in a sense a paradigm shift well at the moment you've now got to the point that the uh, predominant way of framing the data that's available in relation to uh, evolution and genetics isn't working mm. and the fact that probably a significant majority of the professionals in the field look at this and refuse to see it Mm. tells us Mm. that there is a dynamic going on in the profession of being a scientist, in this case a life scientist of one sort or another, that is quite out with the ideological constructs that Mm. people hold up and wave in, in, yes, in the face, yes. faces of the world. Yeah. In, in, in fact, people get quite angry about it. They do, yeah, yeah. Uh, because they're insecure. They're insecure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, t- t- for me, I relish mm. the prospect of change in thought. Mm. I relish the prospect in a sense of a new renaissance, uh, a new understanding. Yes. So I suppose that I... I, and, and I, I, we, I want, we want to encourage others to get that taste of freedom and to liberate themselves in that way and at the same time we have to again we have to have compassion because um, you can see why people have not wanted to trust themselves have not actually liked themselves very much have not wanted to allow their minds to wander freely for fear that they might not follow the well-beaten track and achieve the results and you can see that in terms of the social context out of which this whole thing emerged which is that you've got greater and greater population densities so in order for people to at that higher population density sustain a productive apparatus that will keep the whole thing going you've got to have more and more social control and and it, 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 it's interesting, actually, because it does have implications in society. It does have implications in economics. It has implications in the way we govern ourselves and so on. And 
I think that there is a concern about the increasing uncertainties in in life, that people are craving certainty. Particularly since this approach, excluding the uncertainties and clinging to the deterministic absolute truth, as it were, is clearly leading us to the edge of an ecological cliff and possibly to nuclear war. So uh, we can see that there's something wrong with it and we're feeling even more secure, more more insecure. insecure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Therefore we cling to what we think might just see us through. Yes. Coming back to this question of uh, what else we kind of need in um, the uh, thinking bag, as it were, uh, the contribution that we need to, uh, to, 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 to temper our understanding of what's going on. I often frame it with the question, does science need philosophy? Um, and so I'm going to pose that question to you, Jeff. Does science need philosophy? And if so, what role could philosophy play, given what we're saying about uh, what is we, what we believe to be happening? Well, uh, I think that um, scientists, people who are working in science, and people who are administering science, and people who are talking about science to the mass of the taxpaying population and the political authorities and the magnates that run the large corporations. So not science as such, but the people who from moment to moment are acting so that science exists in our society could usefully benefit from thinking and feeling a little more widely and appreciating their field of activity in more diverse ways. And does this involve philosophy? Well, depends what you mean by philosophy, but it definitely involves questioning Mm. assumptions that we tend to think it would be too much trouble to question. Mm. So, for instance, the assumption that there is an autonomous existent reality out there made of things which are so, have these characteristics fixed and more or less permanent, and then there are categories in our language which match those categories of reality, a one-to-one mapping between language and the real world, and that's how, whatever it is, let's say science, quote-unquote, works Mm. we could start to relativize that set of assumptions it might be a very useful set of assumptions to motivate us to keep us going in certain endeavors which yeah you can't let's not rubbish them but it might be possible that we overdo that Mm. set of assumptions Mm. Mm. and if you're going to call philosophy the process by which we at least envisage that we might be overdoing it, then, yes, there would clearly be a room room for it. You mentioned um, the the reality. Several times you refer to a reality out there, the assumption of a reality that uh, we talked about scientists uh, having a methodology that seeks to, as it were, measure and touch and feel that reality. Pin it down. Pin it down. Yeah, yeah. 
um, it gets us to um, this notion of um, finding a well, whether one could find a a, a should from an is. In other words, do we find the way we should be from accessing this reality? Right. Well, first of all, let's talk about the reality. Uh, we have a habit, uh, again, one of these habits we tend sometimes to overdo, of imposing a binary frame. Mm. Either there is this absolutely independent, autonomous reality, or... Uh, you know, you're away with the clouds, away with the fairies, uh, imagining that it's uh, all up to you to gratify yourself by uh, saying this or that exists, um, wanker that you are, you know. <laughs> it, it needn't be that way. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying that this autonomous external reality is a false notion. It's just that it's a supposition useful in certain contexts, but not necessarily universally applicable to all cases. So then come to the question as to how we decide the right way to act, the best way mm. to act, what's mm. good by way of action, right? Mm. Well, we, we have, from our fetishization of the autonomous external reality, the reflex habit of judging value questions, should questions, from a starting point, there is always an is question. Because mm, mm, mm. this is the nature of humanity, given the genes and the, mm. uh, what happened on the savannas a million years ago, because um, uh, one or another measurable feature of the external world um, has these patterns therefore we must do this now right yes 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 and uh that that's why for instance we no longer talk about what's right or wrong but we talk about costs and benefits yes indeed um and eventually the talking about costs and benefits tends to lead us towards Catastrophe, and we're seeing that because it says to some extent a cost and benefit, uh, in large part, says look, you know, the cost can be accepted if a given benefit but, but is it, acquired. The, the problem also is that I mean, if you go into a corporate environment, because much of this stuff that's actually um, coming out and we're discussing it in terms of science, it comes from the corporate environment. Yes, and yes, 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 uh, yes. Th That's really very important. Yes. And the whole problem in the corporate environment, which you know is invaded politics... This kind of turns on its head, doesn't it, because... Um, that's where cost-benefit comes from, is yes, the corporate yes, environment. Yes, right? yes, and, and, yes, And the, yes. the problem with it is... It becomes self-justificatory. But, but the, no, the difficulty is that, you, of course, you have to use cost-benefit analysis, but you must... Take it with a pinch of salt, because what you can measure mm, 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 is not the actual cost, and no, what you can measure is no. not the actual benefit. There is so much that we cannot measure. Yes, I cannot measure. But I, you know, it's, it's or at least some things are difficult to measure. Well, I, I can't. We, we have to work with what we can measure, yes, yes. but we must not run away out with ourselves and assume that what exists 
is what is measured and reported as having been measured. Exactly. I mean, we know that we have hopes, fears, desires, anxieties, loves, hates. We have a whole lot of emotions. I'm saying something different. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that even in a corporate environment where you've got a perfectly neutral, if you like, goal to maximise your... Not maximise, but to optimise the much better your profits or whatever... Even in that sort of an environment, you can't usefully be guided and uh, sort of with uh, give up your personal decision making and agency as the the boss of the organisation by saying I will go with what the numbers say. You yeah. always look at what the numbers say and then you yes. say no, stop that for a laugh. We're going to do this <laughs> because the numbers don't measure it, right? Yes, yes, and. Similarly, in all sorts of cases, you have to look at the numbers and then you have to evaluate in what measure the unmeasurable invalidates what you get from looking at the measurable. Yes, I'm struck by thinking while you were talking just then um, that uh, our modern society has put a premium on what it calls growth yeah and things become measured by growth in the sense that uh, our economic growth yes, and, and for instance becomes in itself growth, an objective economies grow when there is a catastrophe that's yes, an interesting yes, point yes yes if uh, fukushima when it happens in japan it increased the growth domestic product of Japan because they had to do a lot of things they had to spend a lot of money so growth happened right so the measurement mm. the indices the metrics are never absolute no they're the best we can do and we can use them sensibly so long as we don't absolutize them uh, and and we must be uh, aware of the fact that we are the ones that are choosing those objectives to measure we're choosing what to measure in the light of what objectives yeah. and then we're choosing how to measure them and yeah. then we're choosing when to actually disregard what we've got because we know that that's not actually seizing, capturing what concerns us. No, because actually one, one of the things that uh, we know that has happened in the, uh, in, 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 uh, with globalisation and with uh, modern interpretations of economics that uh, we've had this notion that um, it, you, you can somehow or other solve problems such as poverty, ill health and so on by, as it were, pushing growth as if creating wealth in itself becomes a self-fulfilling thing, that it will pull the poor up out of poverty, that it will pull the poor out of ill health, that it will pull the world up. Yeah. So, and, so and that, we, that, we, that, we've come to, uh, as it were, worship wealth creation, to put a premium on wealth creation in a monetarist term, not necessarily in terms of... Uh, real products, real um, things that benefit mankind on a day-to-day basis. Yes, but, but let's not um, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're going, so long as we have a, a, a very complex society that has a great difficulty in sustaining the population at the levels it's, it's, it's currently achieved, we're going to have to continue with that sort of process, but we must be able to step outside it and not get carried away by it. That's the mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. So, for instance... Because 
we desperately want to have these measures of growth that look better in order, as you say, to bring up the poor, etc. We start to tweak the way we measure them and we exclude more of the externalities and then we're going to fall off the cliff with our uh, ecological thing. So we have to be careful. It's not that we have to say, this is bad, we shouldn't be doing it this way. Yes. No, this is the way that we've got to be doing it, but we've got to relativise. It's got to be... We, we, we have to be aware of what we are choosing to measure and why we're measuring it. And then to always ask whether that really is the most effective way of uh, measuring what we're really wanting to achieve. Yes, and sometimes uh, we have to decide that... In fact, quite often we have to decide that we're going to go away from the course of action that the measurements by themselves would seem to indicate because we're going to recognise that our measurement systems are fallible and incomplete. Or, or our models of the, 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 that we generate yeah, might yeah, be exactly. in, incomplete. And goes, it, it takes us right back there to the idea that uh, we should always be open to a paradigm shift. We should always be open to a new way of looking. Well, we, should, we should always know that whatever we're doing, whether it's in science or in managing our society or whatever, is based on a set of assumptions that we have to broadly hold to, but at the same time maintain our scepticism about yeah. and recognise as being provisional and metaphorical in many ways. Geoffrey Banford, thank you very much for talking to Thin End. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs>